And welcome to another Roots of Faith podcast. As always, I'm Wesley. Happy to be with you guys here. Uh, Just a quick recap over the uh, series I'm kind of going through here as we're talking about uh, who or about the church. And we're kind of looking back at history of the church to how did we get here today. Uh, Started discussing some different lenses in the first episode where we were talking about uh, how do we see the church? When did it start? Did it start in the Old Testament? Did it start in the New? Uh, Did it start with the apostles? How do Gentiles and Jews kind of relate to each other? They just kind of, I just gave you kind of a little bit of information on some of the different views out there on that one. Um, another great uh, thing we kind of dug into is how this post-Jesus movement started moving forward as uh, the church was kind of getting forced out of the synagogues and the temples, how it started becoming more and more Gentile and less and less Jewish. And so we started seeing some differences within the Christian faith on how do we stay, or how are we culturally relevant. I think that's uh, something interesting for a lot of Christians today, as we're kind of all over the world. Why does Christianity look somewhat different in the West Coast than it does on the East Coast? What Most definitely, why does it look different in China and Africa than it does in the United States? Is there really one clear cut? of how we as Christians should even be looking. And always, I'm really interested in just hearing your guys' comments. I definitely want to hear questions, so if you guys are ever watching this and want to discuss or get some interaction, send a comment on either the Facebook post, on either the Roots of Faith page, or on my personal page. Send me an email if you want to discuss something in future episodes. Also, on any of the podcast platforms that we use, uh, go ahead, let me know what you're thinking of the show. Uh, Definitely, I want to hear from everyone. I really kind of want to make this more of an outreach and less of me just kind of venting at a computer of some of the things that I'm talking about. Also, on the YouTube page, if you watch this, which we're not live on YouTube yet, but... Uh, when I post these videos later, leave a comment on those as well. Uh, so definitely, as we're kind of wrapping up of you know the apostolic movement of the church to from you know Peter and Paul and their disciples, we started moving into the expansion of different bishops in different areas. Started to see some of the writings on how uh, this stepping out of a sect of Judaism into kind of how are we as followers of our Jewish Messiah going to live in a way that is also culturally relevant and we're also uh, touching base and we're still keeping true to our roots but we're also you know not out of left field being these weird cult that's kind of just trying to do what 
uh, Jews used to do. And then we have no temple anymore, so we got they started writing things like the Didache and other instructional works of liturgy, including the circulating letters of the apostles in with the Torah and the prophets to be part, to put together an entire doctrine and understanding of how are we going to grow in faith. So we looked at a lot of different Christian leaders. Today, as you can tell by the title, we're going to dive into probably one of the most controversial men in history, uh, Emperor Constantine. Now, who was Emperor Constantine? Well, if we want to break down just some little historical facts, he was the emperor from 306 to 337 CE. Uh, he's the son of Flavius Valerius Constantius, who excuse me, was a deputy emperor in the West from 293 to his death in 306. He was acclaimed as emperor by the army of Ebercum, which is in modern-day York, after his father's death in 306, he emerged victorious in a series of civil wars against emperors Maxentius and Licinus to become the sole ruler of both the West and the East in 324 CE. Now, interestingly, at this point in the Roman Empire, uh, it had been kind of divvied up into like three different chiefs over the three different Caesars who were kind of ruling Rome at that point. Uh, we're going to get into some history of why Constantine or Constantine's stories of his conversion as well as discuss any of the interesting facts about how he became a follower or how he became a Christian. Was he already a Christian? Was his father a Christian? What are some of the stories that were told? What are some of the myths that people proclaim as fact? Was he, should we even view Constantine as a good guy? There's a lot of debate. I have some friends, especially on the messianic side, guys who I love to death, but I think they kind of have some really distorted views of facts that have just become uh, very much used by atheists in an attempt to try and disprove uh, Christianity. Uh, and as usual, for some reason, a lot of these myths end up getting sucked up into uh, the Messianic Hebrew Roots movements of Christianity, where they're like, see, see, we need to be more Jewish and less Christian, and almost as if Christianity is a bad word. And then a friend of mine who we were uh, both ministering at the same uh, Saturday fellowship in Washington, he would always approach... Uh, conversations about kind of expressing why he does what he does with saying, are you pre or post Constantine? And then he kind of would spout out this whole idea of what Constantine did and some of the 
theories that are out there. And we're going to touch on, you know, was Constantine just this guy who clomped onto Christianity to, as a way to bring the empire into unity? Or was he a pure believer? So, probably one of the most famous things is the Battle of Milvane Bridge. So, this is was the key of, you're a student of history, you know this very well, that this is the place where Constantine had his vision. So, where did Constantine's faith come in? Well, there are several different theories. One, it came from the alleged Christian mother of his, Helena, uh, his often viewed Christian sympathizer father, uh, as well as his divine vision. These are kind of the three main ideas. I've looked into several papers, journals, articles uh, posted out there. I did my best to look at scholarly resources, look back into my college notes from my undergrad studies under Dr. Shoemaker. Uh, there's a lot of interesting facts that become myth, and there's a lot of myths out there that become facts. So probably if you're ever studying this, the two main people you want to look at are Eusebius and Lactanicus. These guys are historians of the day. Eusebius was also a bishop. So Eusebius and Lacantus embellish Constantius as the savior figure along with Constantine in part to the fact that Constantine emerged victorious as the sole Roman Empire while Rome was in complete division. So they both record his rise to power with uh, Eusebius's account. It says that when Constantine was praying at around noon, uh, when he was trying to win the civil war in Britannia, otherwise today known as Great Britain, that a remarkable sign appeared in the heavens above the sun. The trophy of a cross of light with the message, By this, conquer. And that night, while Constantine was sleeping, he had a dream of Christ standing before him with the Greek symbol of Christ, the key and the row affixed on top, and a voice commanding him to conquer in his name. The following day, he constructed a battle standard, a labarium with the key and row on top, the symbol of Christ, was also painted on the shields and helmets of some of Constantine's soldiers. Uh, interesting, if you're not familiar with these Greek letters, uh, the key is kind of an, is an X, and the row is a kind of like a line, it's kind of like a P-shaped, and they are fixed with the X and the P kind of lining right through it. These are very symbolic, especially you'll see them in a lot of cathedrals, uh, my monasteries, my university, which was in an old monastery, actually had them 
everywhere in walls, on the stairwell. It's actually a very famous symbol that you may have never even noticed what that actually is. But they, Eusebius and Lactinus do differ on their accounts here. Eusebius is well known for his account, which was given over the course of a dinner uh, several years post this battle uh, is when this came into record. Uh, Eusebius hypes up its importance, claiming that the vision and dream were incredibly important to the conversion of Constantine, while Lactanicus does not play up the vision like Eusebius does. In fact, his account is based much more on the acts of those before Constantine. And while Constantine is seen as a savior figure, the importance of his vision before the Battle of Milvon Bridge is downplayed. So, there were some several Christian precedences that Constantine would put in there. Uh, some history to going back, one reason why... Uh, I'm sure I butchered his name a couple times. I think I said it a few different ways. But Lactanius uh, believes that Constantine was a Christian figure prior to his ascension of the Roman Empire by the fact that we look at Helena, who was a acclaimed Christian by many scholars. His sister took a Christian name. Uh, his father uh, is was seen as a very sim very sympathetic to the Christian plight. In fact, he was the reason why many of the uh, Diocletian orders of destroy and stomp out this Christian religion were actually being done away with throughout the empire. Especially while his father ruled, he was at war trying to persuade the other officials of the Roman Empire that the importance of the Christians is not something that we need to worry about. We don't need to be attacking the, this religion here. It's not a needed point of our I, of the Roman Empire to just try and destroy all these Christians that some of our predecessors have spent their entire political careers focused on. So, well, Constantine is seen as the fate, as the savior here, and the precedences that he set up there with at the Battle of Milvon, the uh, way he paint, had his soldiers paint their helmets and put the Christian symbol, which was not very different than the symbol they were already wearing. Uh, so there's a lot of debate on whether or not the symbol of Christ and the symbol of his division really was that big of a factor. Uh, but by putting these symbols all over the place, it kind of did make some notation. The fact that when Constantine emerged victorious and returned to Rome, he did not 
follow suit in the typical Greco-Roman cult. Now, as the old adage goes, Rome may have conquered the Greeks, but the Greeks conquered Rome. In fact, Rome was very well known for just renaming and redoing a lot of the Greek culture. So, Roman culture just kind of took what the Greeks had already been doing for centuries and just kind of made it their own. Uh, they renamed all the gods, particularly the one that was majorly played up in Rome would be that of one of the head gods, Jupiter. And his temple was the major one of Rome where the uh, idea of, or at least the leaders, the emperor and the imperial cult, what they would do is that's where they would make sacrifices before battle. They would meet with diviners. And so it's told that when Constantine returned to Rome, he did not hike the Capitoline Hill, which was customary from returning from battle. This did create, he did create a statue for himself, proclaiming salvation from tyranny and opened, door for the, and opened the door for the once persecuted Christians. So people often will debate, so was Constantine really uh, saved because he did kind of play himself up as a god. Many people argue that yes, he viewed himself as Apollo to the people. Uh, when it's really interesting when you deal with atheists and other people who proclaim that everything in culture revolved around sun god worship, which sun gods were important, but they were not by any means the most important. We're dealing with polytheistic cultures. So sun, god, sun and moon gods were probably like, in most cultures, the primary gods, the gods of the sky, because they helped control the harvest. But the fact is, you know, they had gods for everything. They had gods for war. They had gods for wisdom. They had gods for the underworld. So by saying, oh yeah, everyone was so focused on the sun god and sun god worship and you know they'll put like oh well you know why we worship jesus on december 25th because that was the birthday of the sun god but then it's also the birthday of zeus apparently as well which zeus or jupiter is not the sun god that would be apollos and in uh the Latin, I can't remember off the top of my head, but they're not the same person. And so, it's something that kind of frustrates theological scholars and Christians who are like, you people are talking out of your rear end at this point when you try to say everything's pagan and... To my Messianic Hebrew Roots friends, 
It is uh, that move, the Hebrew Roots movement has been the most guilty, probably even more than the atheists for proclaiming this misinformation, although atheists do a darn pretty well good job of it. I mean, you can turn on the History Channel and hear it all. So, to let you know, take what you hear on the History Channel with a grain of salt. But, so, these ideas of what did Constantine actually convert to Christianity? Well, so let's look at some of the things he did post-assuming the throne. The rise of Licinius after the death of Severus helped Constantine issue the Edict of Milan. So I'll read you an excerpt from the Edict of Milan here, which says, Accordingly, with sultry and most upright reasoning, we, Constantine and Licinius, resolved on adopting this policy, namely, that we should consider that no one, whatsoever should be denied freedom to devote himself either to the cult of the Christians or to such religion as he deems best suited for himself, so that the highest divinity to those worship we pay allegiance with free minds may grant us in all things this wanted favor and benevolence, free an untrammeled freedom in their religion or cult has similarly been granted to others also, in keeping with the peace of our time, so that each person may have unrestricted freedom to practice the cult he has chosen. This edict was the official end of persecution and the rise of tolerance throughout the Holy Roman Empire. In fact, this allowed restoration for Christians. Uh, Constantine gave backing and the rights of bishops to oversee councils and work out the Christian beliefs of themselves, including the Council of Nicaea, which is one of the most important councils that ever happened in Christianity. This council was called because of the Arian heresy which denied the divinity of Christ. And this discussion was of the heresy that got its name from Arius, who claimed that Jesus was not divine, there was no trinity, and that this belief, of course, contradicts the sole values of Christianity. Arius was found guilty of heresy and asked to recant his ways and beliefs. This helped create an open discussion and ending bishop-on-bishop -bishop war that had been preceding the times throughout early Christian history. Uh, the creed, if you're not familiar of it, if you, end, if you go to any liturgical denomination, you probably read it just about every Sunday. But I'll go ahead and read it here because this is kind of the foundational point of Christianity that had been building and building by bishops and presbyters for decades post the apostolic movement and as Christianity spread out throughout the Roman Empire. This says, 
We believe in one God, the Father, almighty maker of heaven and earth, of all things, visible and invisible, and in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, begotten from the Father before all ages, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of the same essence as the Father. Through him all things were made for us, and for our salvation he came down from heaven. He became incarnate by the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary, and was made human. He was crucified for us under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried. The third day he rose again according to the scriptures. He ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again with glory to judge the living and the dead. His kingdom will never end. And we believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life. He proceeds from the Father and the Son, and with the Father and the Son is worshipped and glorified. He spoke through the prophets. We believe in one holy Catholic apostolic church. We form one baptism for the forgiveness of sins. We look forward to the resurrection of the dead and to life in the world to come. Amen. So, if you're not, if you've never heard that, that is the primary declaration of the Christian Church. This it sums up the gospel and the entire New Testament in that one concise document there. So, with all these positive things of Christianity, uh. How should we view the claims against Constantine's conversion? Well, let's look at some of these claims. Rampant paganism that ran rampant across the Roman Empire. Imperial cult and the Sol Invictus. These appeared on the coins which depicted the image and rulership and authority of Constantine as Caesar. And then we have his arch that was erected there in Rome. So let's take a look at each one of these here. So the imperial cult and Sol Invictus, which defines the Roman Empire as the god to earth. This was no different in any other culture. In fact, even in Hebraic culture, uh, the kings were seen as the hand of God. That's why anyone who assumed the position of Melech was also a Mashiach. They were the Lord's anointed. You'll see it written throughout the Old Testament. David is referred to as Mashiach as well as other kings throughout the Old Testament. Uh, the, so the fact that Sol Invictus and the uh, coins of divinity of the imperial cult still ran on the coins of Constantine issued. Contrary, he also had a coin with his face on the front and the symbol of the key row and the conqueror in this name 
circulating at the same time, as well as the arch constructed there in Rome. Now, on this arch, there are no Christian symbols. In fact, they are all uh, Greco-Roman religion there of Hades and the Pelagian fields and everything. Although, interestingly, if you want to look at some of the debates among this time, many of the church fathers argued that these beliefs that ran rampant throughout Greece and Rome were stolen from Christian and Hebraic understanding of afterlife. There's a very long, interesting discussion on that. Uh, great place to look at is Afterlife in, from the texts of Lewis and Demarest in their Integrative Theology book. It's more than I have time for at this moment to go into. Highly recommend giving it a read, though. I've also linked in some articles that I read, news journals and everything, that with this video here in the information button, I encourage you to look at some of this for yourself as well. So, some important notes posting on these arguments of was Constantine Christian or not? Should he be viewed in the sainthood? Is his important, what is his importance to Christianity today? Well, one big thing that I think every single person who blames the way Christianity looks today and the lack of our Hebraic cultural understanding of Judo-Christianity would, that they blame on Constantine would be a problem because Constantine, for as much as he does for Christianity there, was not the one who created the Holy Roman Empire and established Christianity as the sole religion of Rome. In fact, it was not until 380 CE the Emperor Theodosius issued the Edict of Thessalonica, which made Christianity, and specifically Nicene Christianity, Christianity are the beliefs defined by the Nicene Creed, the official religion of the Roman Empire. Most other Christian sects were deemed heretical, lost their legal status, and had their properties confiscated by the Roman state. So, interestingly enough, Constantine only paved the way for this already struggling Christianity to kind of really come to its forefront and orthodoxy to actually develop. Well, the Roman Empire Constantine the Great reigned from 306 to 337 CE, Christianity began to transition to the dominant religion of the Roman Empire. Historians, of course, remain uncertain about Constantine's reasons for favoring Christianity, especially when we're talking about 10% of the empire. And theologians and historians have argued about which form of early Christianity he subscribed to. There is no consensus among scholars as to whether he adopted his mother Helena's Christianity in his youth or, as acclaimed by Eusebius of Caesarea, encouraged her to convert to the faith himself. Some scholars question the extent of which he should be considered a Christian empire, 
as Constantine saw himself as an emperor of the Christian people, if this made him a Christian, is the subject of debate. Although he allegedly received a baptism shortly before his death. And this comes from some notes there in Lumen Learning. You can also find that website and the whole uh, doctoral PowerPoint from uh, that history class in the notes here as well. Another very interesting thing, and this what article, I love almost reading skeptics and agnostics and atheists articles on Christianity better than reading that of other Christians because it allows me to see a lens and be able to contrast my view. So this journal, journal article posted by Manchester United, or sorry, Manchester University, not the soccer team, on did Constantine save Christianity? Here's the one of the ending quotes there. If it did save Christianity, it did it at a great cost. The life and teachings of Jesus was subsumed in creeds that scarcely mention him. The equality he lived was lost in a hierarchy of sometimes dictatorial religious leadership. His simplicity yielded to elaborate vestments and rituals, and yet we wouldn't have the Gospels today without him. His patronage provides a professional scribal class far superior to the lower-ranking scribes or copyists of the previous centuries, thus why the Western texts are usually considered more sacred than, say, our older, more reliable texts. King James only as people. So, within Constantine, the New Testament was codified and other texts eliminated. Consider this. What persecuted religion in the first millennium ever survived without imperial support? Manichaeism? No. Madonesium? No. Mithras? No. So, to those of you who argue for the Mithras cult, and that being the sole support of Eucharist, I'll get into this more when I deal with the sacraments in a later discussion. Uh, it, it, it's a complete myth. This list goes on. Indeed, if we reflect on the regions that were lost Roman control, Syria, the Lebanon, Egypt, Mesopotamia, we see that Christianity is just a small minority. While such a truth is uncomfortable in terms of peace and conflict, it is something that needs to be grappled with. The attitude of peace Jesus promoted has been lost in wars and hatred supported by imperial Christians. And yet, without imperial support, history suggests that most Christians today would not be Christians, but some others form an empirically-backed faith. The question before Christians today is, can we redeem this past? Can we retroactively make amends of the failures of the church? Can something be both saved and lost? I found this really interesting because I read this article, which completely denies the resurrection of Jesus, sees the church constantly splintering out, 
that both Peter and Paul preach a completely different and contradictory and contradictory differing view of Christ and how the practices of Christianity should be practiced. I encourage you to read the paper. It's not that long of one itself. It really, as you know, Orthodox Christians, and I believe that, and I mean that in the expression of uh, Christians who believe in the Nicene Creed and the creedal known orthodoxy of how Christianity throughout most of history has been viewed, not necessarily referring to the Orthodox Church. But I bring, bring up this quote for a very interesting point that last week when I went through the teachings of the church and we kind of ended with right before the ascension of Constantine, I talked about this quote right here from another paper uh, that said, By the ascension of Constantine to the sole sovereignty of the Roman Empire in AD 324, ancient Christianity may be conveniently divided into two great periods. In the first, it was a religion liable to persecution suffering severely at times and always struggling to maintain itself. In the second, it became the religion of the state and in its turn set about to repress and persecute the heathen religions. It was no longer without legal rights. It had the support of the, to the secular rulers and was lavishly endowed with wealth. The conditions of the church in these two periods are so markedly different and the conditions had such a distinct effect upon the life and growth of the Christian religion that the reign of Constantine is universally recognized as marking the transition from one historical period to another, although no date which shall mark the transition is universally accepted. So, looking at how the Roman Empire and how Christianity throughout came from this persecuted religion to this accepted religion to under to the under Theodosius the universal religion Christianity then stemmed into some dark points because to quote Spider-Man with great power comes great responsibility and so my challenge to my fellow Christians as we're entering into, again, another election season where we will be voting and casting our ballots here in the next couple weeks. Uh, one big problem I have with many of my evangelical brethren here is that we have defined Christianity by the politics that we hold by saying... Oh yeah, being Christian is equal to being a Republican. And you and we discredit other Christians and quote unquote mainline denominations that are usually democratic because of their view of human rights as the forefront of what is important in their lives that we have demonized them as nothing more than liberals who do not accept the truth of the gospel. 
And as always, Trumpers seem to say, oh yeah, we can excuse anything Trump does, but call out any wrong, sinful act by any other president, that is, when he has a demon or, I mean, Democrat behind his name, that that's what we need to focus on that's and his shortcomings are because he's a democrat and you know republicans we can we can forgive them and we we believe god's going to call them to repentance so how should the church be reacting in this uh election season uh, the uh privilege earlier this week of being at a lecture and dinner with the Catholic Diocese of the area that I live in here, Bishop Lucia, who has been here for about 18 months, uh, talking on this very point in which he spoke, as Christians, we need to focus on the gospel as our main priority. We are not here to say, oh, well, this, this, and this dictate what Christianity is. We need to say, well, we believe wholeheartedly what God has spoken. We follow and we live out our Christian faith. And just because I vote for someone who I think is closer to living the way that God lives than someone else, and someone else sees something else important that the church and Christianity teaches, and they vote another way, does not make them less of a Christian. We need to come together in unity and in the soul spirit of Christ to heal our nation. If we are going to do anything, we are going to do it together as believers, not as this cult or that cult. We, are going, we need to come together and we need to say, because of Christ, for the words of God... In this name conquer that should mean to us today as believers that we are going to go out and do what the Bible says and bring good news of salvation to anyone who will hear it our job is to focus on the truth we are as I talked about previously the importance of the Christian life is to bring heaven to earth. This is what God calls the Jews to do in the book of Isaiah. From chapters 40 to 49, over and over again, he says, you are to be the light. Jesus himself spoke that, that we are light and salt to the earth. And if hate is the only one thing that people can see, if the dark part of Christianity, once it got some power and was able to use that power to its advantage, took and destroyed the great name of God, where the cross, as great of a symbol as it is to Gentile believers, is a symbol of persecution to our Jewish brethren, those who were first called out as the believers of God, we have a problem. The church needs to say, we screwed up. It's time to go forth and we need to stop fighting amongst ourselves on petty doctrines and petty 
agreements and say, for the glory of God, I am going to say I believe this, but I am also going to affirm that you as someone who may have a different interpretation and you are not preaching a separate gospel, we can come together in our differences and let God sort it out later. We will have great conversations together. We will grow together. We will sharpen each other as iron on iron. But we will not destroy one another. We are believers in Christ. We are brothers and co-heirs with Christ. So brethren, as I leave you today, I pray that God blesses you and keeps you. May Yahweh make his face shine upon you. May he show forth his countenance and grace to you and bring you his great peace. Shalom.